face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on February 16th, 2021. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 to focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. And very excited tonight uh, to speak with Jazz Lewis, who is a delegate for Maryland's 24th legislative district and is the chair of the Maryland House Democratic Caucus. Jazz is also the senior policy advisor for Majority Leader Congressman Steny Hoyer, previously serving as executive director of Hoyer's Maryland political organization. Jazz also received his Master's of Public Policy from the University of Maryland in 2014. And uh, as you can see, he is a new father. Congratulations, Jazz. It's awesome, man, to see. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to. Yeah, Miguel is sleeping in my arms as we interview. <laughs> Beautiful. So could you talk a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in policy and why others should care about policy? Uh, sure. So. Um, the short and sweet of my background, I, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Um, you know, my parents uh, made enough for us to live in the Outer Beltway, which meant that we lived in slightly safer neighborhoods, uh, but we didn't make, uh, you know, enough uh, that, uh, you know, we were necessarily separated from a lot of the communities to which my parents grew up, with, right? So uh, my father suffered from a drug addiction uh, for all of his life. Um, you know, and coincidentally, my mother worked in drug enforcement. <laughs> uh, so yeah, think about that. Um, but uh, they created a great foundation for me. We valued education. Uh, I grew up happy home, all things considered. Uh, graduated from the public school system and went to University of Maryland for undergrad originally uh, with the idea of studying architecture. My dad was an electrician. He was a member of the uh, in, uh, IBEW 1900 here, which Pepco workers. And, um, you know, I had the idea of working with my dad on building buildings and things like that was the original idea. And President Obama got elected. And I would like to say that, you know, I was inspired by his election to get active, but I was just a regular voter. I didn't really volunteer. I didn't know my family was politically active. I didn't really know how. I got active during the recession because the legislature in Maryland at the time had drastic revenue loss. And one of the ways they were trying to bridge the gap of, of revenue loss, because they have a balanced budget uh, requirement was to subsidize higher education less, uh, which would have meant that tuition went up and I worked my way through school. Uh, so the idea of education increasing, uh, tuition increasing meant that I could have been priced out of my dream and that wasn't fair. So me and a bunch of friends organized a series of town halls, and 600 students came out, which led to direct actions to which a thousand students came out um, uh, protesting the tuition increases. 
the possibility of non-tenure faculty being layered, uh, laid off, which typically are folks of color and women immigrants. And uh, I quickly got pushed into the president's office to see what it will take for me to stand down, right? Uh, so, it, you know, I learned pretty early that people power changes things. And wherever there is people, there is power. Uh, and you have to organize and utilize it. Um, that, was, that inspired me to focus on government and politics. Uh, graduated, became a community organizer in the streets of Baltimore and Philly and my experience there uh, in both cities uh, led me to think that, you know, we need to change policy to really change lives. So I went back to Maryland, got my master's of public policy, uh, focus in international development and uh, uh, government contracting and acquisition. Uh, left there to work for Congressman Hoyer uh, originally on the political side, helping to run his campaign. And now I advise him on policy. And uh, four years ago, um, you know, I, I got into the legislature. Uh, and since then, I've been working on issues of criminal justice reform and economic opportunity. I'm really proud of the work I get to do, particularly because I represent my home uh, where I grew up. And so glad to be here. It's seeing a lot of political campaigns up close. Uh, it's very grueling, takes a lot of time, hours. Uh, you have to have a very thick skin. What was your impetus to actually jump? Because there's a lot of people who are interested in running for office. Could you talk a little bit about just, just the, the inside game of, of running for political office of your experience? Yeah, so my, you know, I originally got into, you know, working for Hoyer and helping other people get elected. I want to get people elected who I felt shared my values. And by that, I meant people who were focused on building consensus to get real things done for real people right now, right? Not ideological purity. Not, I mean, like, you know, if you ever, anyone who served as community organizer knows that people want relief right now, not when you can get it right 50 years from now. Um, uh, so I started managing campaigns to help those folks. And it is grueling tough work. I didn't necessarily have the idea that I would run myself. Uh, what actually happened was that uh, a delegate in my district um, you know, did something he shouldn't have done and he had to vacate his seat. And uh, a bunch, the central committee uh, in between elections in, in our area appoint someone uh, to replace him. So there's a body who's elected to make the choice uh, for everyone. And uh, he, uh, once he left, uh, a group had to come together and make a choice on who would replace. Uh, an, uh, our community of elders asked me to put my name forward, which was a shock because I was 27 at the time. You know, I, I'd been very active in my district since I was a child, but I didn't really think that I would be the one that they chose. I thought I'd just be probably helping whoever get through the appointment and get elected. Uh, and I did get through, it was, it was contentious, uh, but we had the majority of the vote and I've been, I've been proud to serve. So. You know, what I would recommend to people if they want to get involved is just start helping people locally. The difference between federal campaigns and local ones is that, um, it's okay, buddy, um, is when you work on a local campaign or state campaign, you not only are getting to know the candidate, you're also helping to shape their policy and build community. Whereas it's great to help win a presidential race, but you may never meet the candidate. And even if you do meet the candidate, you may never have any influence on the outcomes uh, beyond helping to educate voters and turn them out, which is critically important, but uh, not that same level of intimacy that you can feel like, you know what, I had an impact here. So I'd, I really recommend people get involved at their state and local level first. And I'm so proud to be living in Maryland at this time in history when there's so much progress at the state level of Maryland. And 
as the Republicans knew, you know, the last 40, 50 years going state by state, taking over the houses and, and really having this mm-hmm. tsunami over the last 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm just so excited for the future of so many people in Maryland like yourself. And can you talk a little bit about your experience in Annapolis? And because you, you have uh, intimate knowledge of Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill, but then uh, Annapolis is a whole new game. But yet, before getting into some of the, the policies and legislation you're pushing forward, um, what's been your experience since coming to Annapolis? So um, when I first got to Annapolis, I was 27 years old. Uh, so I was I was the young gun. And, uh, you know, they tried to haze me a little bit. Uh, and that, that was fine. But one thing I would tell you that I've liked about my experience in Annapolis as opposed to in D.C., because, uh, you know, working on Capitol Hill for a member of Congress, you know, I would drive from the Hill to Annapolis every week for the start of our legislative session. Um, after we do our opening, we, we go in 8 p.m. on Monday nights uh, in a normal environment, not during the pandemic. And after we would go in and be in them for about an hour and a half on Monday night, um, then a bunch of the Democrats and Republicans would then go to a local high school and play basketball. Whereas no politics, we just get to know each other. And that's something you would never see on Capitol Hill. And it's important because like it builds camaraderie. You start talking about other things about people's family and their values, not necessarily bills or issues, but their values and you find out how you can bridge the gap. Like, I know we're not talking about policies just yet, but like one of my signature bills this year, you know, I'm, I'm a young black man who considers himself a practical progressive the Senate sponsor for one of my bills that deals with parole change is a conservative Republican, right? Where we come to this issue from different perspectives, but we got to the same place. And because we were able to build a camaraderie, uh, we can kind of model to others that, you know, it doesn't have to be so partisan. Something, particularly when the data shows itself, some things are just common sense, you know? And uh, I do enjoy that about Annapolis. It's hard though, I'll tell you. Unlike DC, you get a lot of press and attention in DC. So even let's say members who may not have a lot of power because they're new, they can make an issue a national issue because they're on the national level and a ton of press will come to them. That's not the case in Memphis. We, you know, if, if you're not uh, the presiding officers, it's really hard getting the press to pay any attention to you. So you're, you're fighting, you have the opposite problem, an uphill battle of trying to get your issues addressed. Uh, so what you do, which I've adapted, is I've just used social media like a monster <laughs> to try to you know build you know statewide and national campaigns around what I'm doing here. So let's talk about your Juvenile Restoration Act. That is a reform bill to prohibit life without par- parole for many uh, young offenders. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and why you wanted to uh, put this forth? Sure. The Juvenile Restoration Act. Uh, does does two things. The first thing is that it bans life without the possibility of parole uh, for juveniles. Uh, in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that giving uh, juveniles uh, a sentence of life without the possibility of parole, uh, with the exception of the most extreme cases, uh, was unconstitutional. Uh, then in 2013, and again in 2016, they doubled down in subsequent cases and extended further to say that uh, uh, you know, not just is it unconstitutional, but for people who have been sentenced to this, they should get remediation, right? So Maryland is one of few states who still has on their books 
the possibility of, of charging a child with life without the possibility of parole. Now to be clear, if you're charged with life or a life equivalent, you know, 70 years or life without the possibility of parole, you have been uh, convicted. I, I won't say that you did, but you've been convicted of something very egregious, okay? Um, what my bill says is one, we're no longer charging juveniles to life without the possibility of parole, right? Like the, it's unconstitutional. But two, we're creating a process so that people aren't essentially dying in prison if they were a child. So my bill says that after you serve 20 years, uh, you get a chance at resentencing before a judge. Uh, it's not a guarantee you're gonna get out. Uh, there's about uh, 11 factors they have to review, which essentially is like a risk assessment to determine if you've rehabilitated and if justice has been served, which means that, you know, you are remorseful and, uh, you know, there's a whole number of factors that are included there. We also take a statement um, from uh, the victim or the victim's representative, if they're still alive and, uh, and able to, uh, if they want to participate, on the possibility of someone coming out. It doesn't necessarily, you know, if they don't want someone to be released, it doesn't end the conversation, but we want to make sure that, you know, we're not, uh, we are including victims in the process because we care about them, right? Justice is served partially by victims feeling whole. Um, and that's the bill. And, you know, uh, Senator Chris West is a Republican. He comes to the bill because a lot of data shows that particularly juveniles who are locked up, after they pass the age of 30, their likelihood of reoffending and doing anything is less than 1%. So why are we having these folks serve until they die or until they're 70, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old? He thought it was a waste of money. I just thought it was morally wrong, right? Either way, we came to the same conclusion and he's a Senate sponsor and I'm the House sponsor. And, you know, whereas we have progressive more groups like ACLU and NAACP uh, in support of our bill, we also have more conservative groups like R Street and the American Conservative Union have also come out in support of our bill. And there's also a, a racialized element with um, something like 82% of youths in Maryland sentenced to life without parole are black. So it, it's also on top of it being a moral to an economic. We, we have a massive backlog, over 400 juvenile lifers right now who's already served 20 years that if my bill passed, they could see relief. Uh, nationally for all the states who passed this, a comparable bill to what I've had right now, uh, less than 1% has recidivated. And even the ones who have recidivated, they haven't convicted a crime. They haven't been convicted of a crime. They've been convicted of, of violating probation, such as like leaving an area without telling their parole officer. You know, uh, I mean, these are people who've already served 20 plus years. They have no incentive uh, to go back to the penitentiary. Um, and, you know, 87% of the people who receive uh, juvenile life or sentences in the state are black. Uh, and that's, that's a shame. We're the highest in the country right now. But you would think we're higher than Louisiana, we're higher than Arkansas, we're higher than Mississippi. That's crazy. It's absolutely. You can fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate what you're doing on that. And then HB 32, uh, I think, is also a, a racial justice bill as much as a criminal justice reform bill. Could you talk a little bit about what it is and uh, why you want to support this as well? Sure, uh, the uh, HB 32 is a cannabis legalization bill uh, with a racial equity focus. Um, you know, we all know that the war on drugs disproportionately fell on black and brown communities. 
uh, in Maryland, uh, you know, African-Americans are incarcerated for cannabis uh, possession at five times the rate of our white counterparts, despite the fact that uh, the use of cannabis is the same among communities. Uh, it's, it's a shame, it's discriminatory. Uh, when I speak to folks in law enforcement, they think policing cannabis is a waste of their time. They would rather focus their energy on major crimes such as rape, such as murder, such as major drug traffickers, right? Uh, not people for simple possession and, uh, and things like that. And uh, so my bill first allows for the expungement of records for people who've already been sentenced. I don't think we should legalize any industry that people are gonna make millions of dollars while folks still have the scarlet letter of a criminal conviction around their neck, holding them back and holding their families back. Uh, that's not fair and that's not right. The second part of the bill uh, deals with um, uh, equity in, in, in far as where the resources are gonna go, okay? So we, uh, the state of Maryland has chronically underfunded our four HBCUs. Uh, so we dedicate 20% of the uh, revenues off the top to our HBCUs to stand them up. We also create a community repair and uh, restore fund uh, which are for the communities that bore the brunt. And this is based off of data, police records, uh, arrest records of who, where we have extracted people the most, right? Uh, and sent them to prison. Uh, those communities will receive an infusion of cash um, for programs such as community uplifts, scholarships for low-income uh, folks, uh, workforce development programs, uh, programs to redirect youth from uh, from violence and gangs and things of that nature, uh, which is critically important. Uh, workforce development for reentry services is, is in there as well. Um, we also do some public safety measures, such as, you know, we fund substance abuse uh, treatment programs in the bill and uh, educating law enforcement on how to uh, use drug recognition experts so that we aren't abusing people, essentially think about the stop and frisk. Um, uh, challenges that folks have had in the past. So it's a comprehensive bill. The third part deals with equity in, in the industry itself. We set aside some uh, parts of the industry exclusively for social equity businesses, which are disproportionately, uh, you know, folks of color, low-income folks, folks who've been formerly incarcerated to make sure that they have a foothold uh, in the industry so that we can also address racial wealth inequality uh, that has been another major issue, not just here in Maryland, but across our country. So it's a comprehensive bill. We had our hearing earlier today. Uh, I think the outcome is promising, but you know, I'm the bill sponsor, right? So <laughs> I think it's such a good revenue move too. I mean, in this era of, uh, you know, limited like revenue that's going down because so many businesses closing. Um, so, and then taking people out of jail, you're going to save money yep. there as well. So that's, that's, I think a no brainer. And then congratulations on, passing the Relief Act of 2021 for, for Maryland, which uh, you want to just talk a little bit about that too, because you, there's a bunch of good bills that uh, have been passed in, in the last uh, month. Sure, so the Relief Act was a Maryland stimulus plan. Uh, unlike the federal government, we can't borrow in order to help folks. So we had to reach into um, our rainy day fund a, a little bit so we can help everyday Marylanders. Uh, Fortunately for us, because you know people have been using online sales over the interim, you know we, that kind of bolstered our budget a little bit. But the Relief Act gives loans to small businesses and nonprofits in the state at zero interest. Okay, so it's essentially a grant to help stand them up. 
Uh, it also provides a instant check uh, to go out to uh, tax filers. So whether you, you file to your social security number uh, or not, or through some other way, we're going to take care of you. Uh, the governor did want to include undocumented folks in the bills, but we worked out a deal to help out um, you know, undocumented and legal residents through who file through I-10. Uh, and we're taking care of that as well. One of the things I'm really proud of the bill is that we dedicate over $80 million to paying the back costs of people's utility bills uh, who are in arrears because they lost their jobs and things across the state. So that, that should pay essentially about everyone who's in arrears about half to two thirds of their backlog, which I think is critically huge uh, and important. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a major bill. We're also fixing our unemployment insurance program uh, to, to help folks as well. I'm really proud of the work we're doing. Actually, tomorrow we're going to announce that through the federal government pass-through, uh, we're getting about $400 million to deal with eviction relief. And I'm going to be chairing the group, uh, figuring out how we're going to divvy that to make sure we have the greatest impact as possible. Awesome. Just uh, hopefully won't go to some of the Kushner properties uh, in Baltimore and places like that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. And, and I know you're... Uh, your little man may be uh, getting up right now. So um, one final question, I guess, is um, on the veto override that you just did with the governor on the Maryland internet tax on online ads. I'm super pumped about it. It's the first state in the country to um, start taxing uh, some of these large internet providers for people who don't know. Um, if I'm buying an ad on Facebook, I oftentimes don't know, you know, I, I put the money in, I don't know if it reaches my audience. I don't always know where it's going. It's very hard to audit. So I think a tax also will create a lot of transparency while generating revenue for Maryland. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the veto override? Because I'm, I'm super excited about this. Yeah, we, we overrode a ton of governor's vetoes. One on, um, of course, like I stated before, uh, standing up and financially supporting our HBCUs, which he vetoed, uh, we overrode that. We had the Kerwin Commission, which was a three-year study on how to invest and create the best education system, uh, not just in the country, but in the world. And it required a, a $4 billion cash infusion over 10 years. And um, the governor, you know, he, he says he's a governor of education, but every time we need to fund it, all of a sudden he goes missing, right? So uh, we put our money where our mouth is and dedicated, particularly online tax sales, including the digital tax, uh, to funding education. Uh, and um, we overrode the governor's veto on that. Uh, he, he vetoed the digital ad tax, which uh, Evan just referenced, uh, which is making sure, if, listen, you know, businesses and, and others who spend money on Google and Facebook and, and you name it, uh, to try to reach a target audience, they don't have a lot of agency over what's happening. But they're taking in a lot of capital right now, right? We're taxing that. Now, and we actually included language so that they can't pass that on to the small business. Uh, they, they have some ads that they've been running that's essentially lying to people saying that they will, but uh, we've had our attorneys check it out. They can't, right? Uh, so this is a, a tax uh, that we will, we will have on them, but I think it's going to bring accountability to small business owners to make sure they know where their money is going when they spend it. And ultimately, you know, I think it's time for these large corporations to pay their fair share. Right? They are leveraging the internet that the taxpayer helped create okay, and making billions of dollars. The least they can do is pay their fair share. 
and it's almost becoming a public utility. Everyone needs it. Everyone uses it. And uh, this is the first shots fired in this very large ad tech industry that's been destroying newspapers and been laying off journalists. So, um, oh yeah, really appreciate all your work and your time. Uh, I hear child's waking up right now. So thank you so much, Jazz. No problem. Thanks for having me, Evan. You have a blessed one, man.